Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. This is still well underway on Astrobytes, but today's episode is a bit different, where instead of discussing papers with associated Astrobytes, we'll hear from some of the experts in our field, our co-hosts, on what they consider to be landmark papers in their fields. We will still call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a fifth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the universe at high redshift, both observationally and theoretically. And I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study how elemental abundance impact planet formation and evolution. You're listening to Episode 64, Our Take on Landmark Papers, Part 2. Just like in Part 1, our co-hosts are going to present some landmark papers from their subfields and talk about how they relate to their own research. Now, so we hear every episode, the little intro of what we do, but it's time to get into a little bit more depth about what you both do. So, Sabrina, can you please start us off giving us a description of your research? And, just like last time, we're going to put two minutes on the clock. I forgot about that as I was preparing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> can I have a countdown? Okay. Three, two, one, go. So I truly believe I may be one of the most scattered graduate researchers of all time. In graduate school so far, I spent time working on reionization simulations using deep learning and Bayesian statistics, a bit of rocky exoplanet modeling, and also instrumentation for Canada's next big radio telescopes. So I'm going to focus on the last one since it's what I've spent the most time doing the last few years. And I've talked a bit about the instruments that I've worked on in the past few episodes, especially the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, or CHIME, which, as you can tell from the name, was actually built as a hydrogen intensity mapping experiment to look for baryon acoustic oscillations, these waves in the plasma of the early universe. But it ended up being this excellent fast radio burst catcher, discovered hundreds of fast radio bursts, with those of which that have at least been published. So hundreds, maybe there's more. So that sort of follows in the theme of what I'll discuss in this episode and in my landmark paper, and that this was an unexpected discovery in radio astronomy coming out of an instrument that was supposed to be sort of a cosmology instrument. So I'll also see in my landmark paper how radio astronomy was actually developed in the early 1900s. So for my research, I specifically was working on calibration of CHIME and also CHIME's successor, the Canadian Hydrogen Observatory and Radio Transient Detector. They finally added radio transient to this one. And I was working on calibration of both the ionosphere and the beam of these telescopes. So the beam is basically how the telescope responds to different parts of the sky. And the ionosphere, as you might know, limits the actual frequency that we're able to probe in radio astronomy. So we're only able to actually see radio waves on Earth down to about 20 megahertz. That's about the plasma frequency of our ionosphere. And that chime <laughs> okay. is your that deadline. <laughs> Even though I'm a bit beyond time, let's just say I've worked on calibration for cord and chime. So these next generation radio telescopes in Canada, or I guess one has already been built, but sort of the successor of 
of these telescopes. And I'm actually leaving radio instrumentation now for more theoretical research and hopefully will narrow my focus throughout grad school. We'll see. Stay tuned, Astro Soundbites listeners. Hopefully Sabrina figures her <laughs> stuff out. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's actually quite exciting because by the time you're done, you will have done instrumentation. You will have done subfields relating to extragalactic astronomy as well as aeronomy, which is Earth atmosphere focused, right? If you're doing ionosphere calibrations and whatnot. I didn't know that that was what it was called. How are yeah. they just figuring that out? No one in radio astronomy calls that. But yeah, we just, we really need to understand exactly the ionosphere, what the ionosphere looks like, or how many electrons basically are above our instrument to be able to see how it will affect the radio waves that hit the dish. Absolutely. And the study of the ionosphere is a big deal. A lot of people in my department do that. So I'm well aware of it. Oh, really? I should have made you one of my collaborators. Oh, I don't do any of this stuff. <laughs> Oh, okay. No, I don't touch charged particles. I'm a strictly neutral guy. Hmm. I guess that's fitting for your personality, maybe. Is it? I don't know. I think so. While the listeners ponder that, <laughs> we will move over to Kirsten. Are you ready? Two minutes on the clock? Man, I didn't know that this was going to be timed. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. Okay, so I generally do exoplanets, but I have two different sides of my research, and it can only be connected through the term elemental abundances. So on one side of my research, I do planet interior models to figure out how planet composition, so like different types of rock, will change the properties like mass and radius of the planets that we're observing. So these things could be used to characterize planets. And for example, one of the papers that I'm about to submit for publication, can we explain hot, low-density super-Earth planets with magma? Mm. And then on the other side of my research, I look at planet demographics. So looking at large populations of stars to see if we can discover planets. And then if we discover planets, how do they correspond with elemental abundance or a, amount of material. So on that side, I'm specifically asking the question, how much material is required for planet formation? And you'll hear more about this side of my research when I talk about my landmark paper. But the idea is that theory predicts that there should be a certain amount of materials or metals to form a planet. But observationally, we haven't seen this yet. However, we do see a trend for more metal-rich stars and with gas giants, and that's been known for roughly about as long as we've been discovering exoplanets. And in my most recent work, it looks at this extremely metal-poor region to constrain planet formation. And it's actually super exciting because we think that we finally found this point where planet formation cannot occur because there is not enough material. And there is the stargaze alarm. <laughs> and you nailed it. Stargaze. <laughs> Perfect. Yay. So I'm interested in your Magma Ocean paper. I guess we'll see it on the archive soon. It sounds like a very bold title. Yeah. I absolutely, I feel like the Magma Ocean stuff is just like candy. I love the theory part of it. And it's actually, that has a pretty interesting result too. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Thank you both for those explanations, and I'm excited to hear how they connect with the landmark papers you've brought us. So let's dive on in. Sabrina, thank you so much for picking a 350-word paper. It was just Yay. a delight to read and digest the whole thing. 
It's because I wanted to, you know, reminisce about our old episodes when we would do astrobites. This was basically an astrobite. Carl Jansky was the founder of astrobites, not radio astronomy. (laughs) (laughs) If somebody did write an astrobite on this paper, it would probably be much longer than the paper itself. Oh, so there are two, actually. I guess one paper that came before and then a paper that came after it. So it was sort of like sandwiched between two longer papers. So it's it's really not 350 words, okay? I tried a little harder than this. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. But sometimes the greatest discoveries come in the shortest papers. But let's get into it. Tell us about this landmark discovery of radio signals. Sure. So it's actually really interesting. Radio astronomy is a relatively new subfield. Um, it came out of this nature paper that I'll be describing in a second in the early 1900s. So unlike optical astronomy, where you can look through a telescope made with lenses and see the object with your own eyes, radio astronomy requires the use of voltage measurements to measure the signal on the sky. So maybe that'll hint to why it took longer to actually become a field, right? We didn't, Mm. we've had lenses for longer than we've understood about electricity. So the paper I'm discussing today is a nature paper by Carl Jansky called Radio Waves Outside the Solar System. And I guess it's also linked to a longer paper called Electrical Phenomena that Apparently Are of Interstellar Origin. <laughs> That's so funny because <laughs> it's basically a paraphrase of the fun, punchy title that just sounds more sciency. Yeah, and it was published on July 8th, 1933, and really marks the beginning of radio astronomy. So what this guy, Carl Jansky, started to see, he called these his-type atmospherics coming from the same direction of the sky. So Carl Jansky had this large directional antenna. He was studying transatlantic communications in the early 1930s, so this shortwave radio communications across the Atlantic. He was working at Bell Labs. Yeah, so, I mean, studying transatlantic communications in this time from Bell Labs, right? This was like the pinnacle of applied science, right? Yeah, I guess I didn't think about it like that. I was going to say this too, Will, because of the submarines. Yeah, exactly. Oh. It was mostly because they wanted to pinpoint where other submarines were. So it was interesting that he was working on that. There was probably some classified stuff related to this. And also, you know, radio had only really become very popular 10, 15 years ago. So... It was like, what can we do with this amazing new idea? And Bell Labs, I mean, it was one of the coolest places you could ever work in history. I know. I think about that, too, especially because the cosmic microwave background discovery was also part of like a Bell Labs instrument or something like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the specifics, but they're all linked and it's really awesome. So Carl was looking at this. Now we're on a first name basis. <laughs> We've always been on a first name basis. (laughs) Yeah. So he's taking this data with an analog pen and paper recording system, which is like Will's strip charts from the last episode. So literally, he's just, it's kind of like a lie. If you picture a lie detector test, I think that's the only thing it's still used for, maybe seismography. Mm -hmm. But he's literally measuring these voltages just like on a piece of paper. So he's taking all this data for a whole sidereal year which is about 20 minutes longer than a normal year. And he sees that this source is coming from the same direction of the sky again after that amount of time. Let's just clarify some stuff. Is this ideal year the time it takes for Earth to do a full revolution, not for the seasons to return to their same time? Yeah, 
the sidereal year is the time it takes for Earth to complete one revolution mm-hmm. of its orbit. And the tropical year is linked to the ecliptic longitude of the sun. The normal year we think about is the longitude of the sun increasing by 360 degrees. Right. Historically, this difference was significant because this 20 minutes a year, right, amounts to a slight difference in the arrival time of the seasons if your calendar doesn't correct for that. So when Julius Caesar set up the Julian calendar and it did not correct for Earth's precession, which wasn't measured at the time, by the Middle Ages, these 20 minutes a year had added up to something like three weeks. And Pope Gregory the ninth, I think. How do you know all these random <laughs> facts? Well, because there's an important point I'm getting to, which is that Pope Gregory realized, well, he didn't, he didn't realize, but he had astronomers on staff who realized that spring was arriving about three weeks earlier than it was supposed to. So they fixed the calendar. And our current calendar, the Gregorian calendar, is named after him because we corrected for the precession of the Earth in the arrival time of the seasons. So there were three weeks that were skipped and the calendar had to jump three weeks ahead back in the 16th century to correct for this. Interesting. It seems like science was just wild back in the day. We've got popes, like, changing calendars. What was he doing with astronomers? What was the pope doing with astronomers? Yeah, well, I mean, the Vatican had tons of astronomers because it was part of the royal astronomers and part of the Holy Roman Empire. The intersection of religion and astronomy actually is quite important. And getting the calendar right is pretty significant for everybody, especially when you want to, you know, pray on the right days. By the way, I was off by a few popes. It's actually Gregory the 13th. Honestly, the way you said that with such confidence, I would (laughs) have believed you any day. I believe you over Google. What's the difference? An eighth versus a whatever? (laughs) Why are they all named Gregory? Yeah. Anyway, I definitely need to read a little bit more about history and astronomy. Before I totally screw this up, let me just make sure I am right about this. Um, Yeah, I just did 20 minutes times 1,500. It's 20 days, 20 hours. So I was exactly right. Okay, cool. Yeah, so interesting insight from our uh, in-house historian, Mr. Will Saunders, (laughs) or almost Dr. Will Saunders. You can't become a doctor because if you leave the podcast, who's going to give us these history facts? Please don't say almost. You sound like my mom. When are you graduating again? (laughs) No, I love my mom. She's so supportive. I I, I wouldn't say a bad thing about her. Anyway, that was really interesting. So in the paper before the Nature paper, which was where he actually thought this might have been coming from the sun, he categorized these signals into three groups. He said they're local thunderstorms, they're distant thunderstorms, and then they're this his-type atmospheric that I mentioned before. It wasn't until later on that he started to talk more with his astronomer friends and he took more data. And he discovered that the data was extraterrestrial and coming from outside of our solar system. One of his astronomer friends said, there are clouds of dust in that direction. So Carl Dansky has these amazing results, right? He has this nature paper. He's considered the founder of radio astronomy. Um, And in his paper, he actually says that with considerable accuracy, they localize this source to plus or minus 30 degrees. Which now, to kind of go back to my research with Chime and then the successor to Chime, we want to localize fast radio bursts to their galaxies at like 50 milliarc second levels, which is a million times better localization. (laughs) So basically, 
in the last, hasn't even been a hundred years, we've come a million times better in localizing things. And obviously it's still really hard. And Carl points to the reason that he can't get this localization done very well, which is a lot of the same reasons that we have because of the ionosphere, because of the limitations of the apparatus and the attenuation of waves as they're passing over the surface of the earth. So he had it all figured out for calibration or he, he sort of set the stage for what would be radio calibration for the next 100 years. That's so awesome. Yeah. And just to clarify, the radiation peaked when the antenna was pointed to the densest part of the Milky Way, so in the Sagittarius constellation. The radio signals come from the supermassive black hole. I don't think if it, it, it's just that area, because I mean, obviously mm. this wasn't what showed that that existed. Right. But showed that, I guess, radio could be used to probe that area. So Jansky really wanted to keep working on this, but... He was reassigned at Bell Labs because he was an engineer, right? He wasn't a radio astronomer. That's wild. It's interesting because I see this a lot in radio astronomy now. Like the engineering and the astronomer boundaries are very loose. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to do a lot of engineering to understand radio astronomy instrumentation. But then you also need to know radio astronomy to, to make sense of the instrumentation. So it's really interesting to see how this whole started. And it was really an engineer that was the first radio astronomer. And now you might have heard Carl Jansky's name in front of the very large array in New Mexico, which is probably the most successful radio interferometer on Earth. Mm. It's definitely most famous. It was featured in like that movie Contact. The most common radio unit for flux is named after the Jansky, which is 10 to the negative 26 watts per meter squared per hertz, if that means anything to you. Um, so... <laughs> Actually, to give some perspective, the brightest radio sources, so like fast radio bursts, for example, would be on Jansky's level. But a lot of times, like more faint radio sources that are more common would be on the Milijansky level. And he's also with the most prestigious radio postdoc fellowship is named after, called the Jansky Fellowship by the National Radio Astronomical Observatory. So I guess even though Carl didn't get to keep working on radio, he still was remembered in the field of radio more than any other radio astronomer. Honestly, I didn't really know much about his background until I was preparing for this episode. Like, I've just heard his name over and over and over again, but like I hadn't gone and actually read this paper. So mm. it was really interesting. And like I saw that the same problems he was having for his instrument is basically what we're trying to solve just at a much more precise level with the upcoming instruments in radio astronomy that I was talking about. That is super cool. Just imagine, like, not super your field coming in, and then now a 100 or so years later, or almost a 100 years later, a whole bunch of things are named after you, and you even have your own unit of measurement. I want a bully unit or something like that at some point. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really good. I don't want to call radio astronomy, like, a super accessible field. It is accessible, but it's it's also very difficult, not to downplay it in any way, but I feel like anyone can make a radio telescope. Like you just need a wire and you can measure, well, maybe not very precisely, but you can measure <laughs> something. Like that's a dipole and that's a, that's a radio telescope. That points to sort of the grassroots aspect of radio astronomy. And which is one of the reasons I really love it because you get to have kind of see the calibration and the data reduction side, which I don't think you see as much with like the major optical astronomy instruments. Usually the reduction and the calibration is done for you. Well, speak for yourself. I don't know. Okay, maybe I shouldn't say that then. 
but it's different than optical telescopes where you know there's i feel like there's a whole team dedicated to the just like the optical instrument and there That's are, are mm-hmm. people in the radio telescopes that i was talking about like in chime and cord that are dedicated to that but people have to think like almost everyone that uses the data has to think about like what were the calibrators used what did the beam look like and make those adjustments versus just being handed the data and saying here you go now do science so it's it's kind of interesting to have that connection on some level it sounds like you have to kind of be an engineer to figure out and like know what's happening with the instrument because i can say for a fact that i the data that i use i have no idea about any of that stuff i get it and i'm like oh lovely i i think whoever is is doing all of this um reduction and stuff in the background maybe that's also just part of the fact that radio astronomy is a lot newer mm-hmm. so we haven't gotten to that level i mean there are some instruments in the u.s like vla and vlba usually your data is handed to you in a nice package or you just have to reduce it with their antiquated software that is really annoying <laughs> to download and use yeah well interferometry is known for its uh, intensive reduction right yeah but anyway i, I think it, it's just it's an interesting connection back to the 1930s i kind of empathize with carl a bit and i don't know i feel more connected after reading this <laughs> what i say you and carl are best <laughs> All yeah, right, so on, <laughs> on that note, Sabrina's best bud, the, the long-dead Carl Jansky, is memorialized in many ways as the pioneer of an important field. But we have to move exactly. on. Exactly. <laughs> no. I'm ready for the space sound. <laughs> yes, okay. Very good. Moving uh, away from Carl. <laughs> Sabrina, thank you for bringing us those papers. It was two, though I only read one of them. And... <laughs> We will now move to this week's landmark, legendary, licit, and non-lyrical sound from luminary locations. The We'll move on to what? The space sound. <laughs> okay, okay. What do you think that was? So, I think that that was part of a horror movie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Dying by electrocution or something. (laughs) I was thinking it must be something with some orbital motion. Like, I was thinking pulsar or planet, but I I don't know what that, like, tick is. I guess when the signal is the strongest, but it seems, like, kind of discontinuous or something. Hmm. So... I'll give you a hint. There were a lot of different sounds in that clip. They weren't all part of the same sound. Hmm. Yeah, I think that, I don't know, the, 
how ominous it sounded in the beginning. I have no idea about the ticking, but it seemed almost like some sort of background. Like it makes me think of the CMB. I know it's not the CMB, but it sounds almost staticky. But it it sounds irregular. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of stumped on this one. I think this is a good space sound. Sabrina, you want to wager a guess? I mean, I was thinking pulsar, honestly, just because of the ticking. But the ticking kind of sounded pretty uniform to me. I don't know. Something orbiting, maybe, is my guess. Can it be vague? Could it be something in different wavelengths, like the same thing, but in different wavelengths? Oh. It could be, but it isn't. Uh, okay. That's a good guess, though. Yeah, you're both like very vague and very wrong. So <laughs> you're no. going to love it because this is not a sonification. These are sounds recorded from the microphone on Perseverance, the newest rover on Mars. Oh. Oh. That's so cool. So here, I will show you the video again, and I'll play through each of the things that we heard. So here's the video. And at first, this is the sounds of Perseverance cleaning off rocks to be able to study. And those little ticks are puffs of gas in the background. Oh, interesting. You can The very faint background is a little wind. You could barely hear it, but it's there. Yeah. Do you hear that? Like every now and then it kind of makes a little crackle. That's the Martian wind. That's so tricky. It does sound like a mic. Like when, you know, you walk out and you're talking to someone on the phone and it's like just like a blast of wind. Exactly. And this whir is from when Ingenuity took flight that Perseverance could hear. Then the last sound you heard as part of this video, the little crackling is when Perseverance uses electricity to spark and sublimate rocks into gas so that it can study the composition of the rocks. I never would have guessed that. 100% would not have guessed that ever. Yeah, that's really tricky. I was actually going to use a similar sound like from Voyager or something in the last episode, but I wasn't convinced, like I couldn't find one this good. So I don't even, yeah, I don't know what that would have sounded like, but. Yeah, I've had this space sound saved on my computer for months. I came across it a few months ago. I was like, oh, next opportunity, I'll use this. And for whatever reason, I haven't hosted in a long time. (laughs) And so here's my opportunity. Awesome. All right. So moving right along, Kirsten, it is your turn. And earlier, Sabrina said that radio astronomy is a pretty new field, but your field of exoplanets (laughs) is really, really new. So... Let's get into this behemoth of a paper that you've brought. Okay. Yeah. Exoplanets has only been around like 28 years or something like that. Super baby field. So as you can imagine, this landmark paper is not going to be a super old one. I would have loved to bring a paper even older than 1933. That would have been awesome. (laughs) But alas, here we are. So the paper that I'm going to be talking about is Udrian Santos, 2007, and it's this review paper. It's called The Statistical Properties of Exoplanets. And at this point, we had finally started calling exoplanets exoplanets, but it was wild when I was reading some other papers. It was like a totally different field when I was trying to pick just one. They literally were calling them extrasolar planets within the paper, which feels a bit weird because, Mm. I mean, I know, I know that it's called extrasolar planets, but 
everyone uses exoplanets now. But anyway, so I couldn't pick just one. So I wanted to broadly talk about this subsection of this review paper, section 4.1, which is on this planet metallicity correlation. And before I jump into this, I'm going to be using the term metallicity a lot. So I figure that I should probably define it. So when I'm saying metallicity here, I'm talking about the iron abundance with with respect to hydrogen. Um, And some people call this term Fe on H. And on this scale of metallicity, zero is the metallicity that our sun has. And anything that is negative has less metals or less iron than our sun. And anything that is above that has more. Why do we just use iron? Why not calcium or magnesium? That's a good question. Yeah. So this is kind of uh, one of the things that I also question. And one of the, the things that I'm doing next in my research, I think long story short is that most stars have these iron abundance measurements. And I think that the reason why is basically due to this paper. Hmm. Wow. It's because of this correlation that we find between the iron abundance and planet occurrence rates or the likelihood to find a planet. That's the major reason why. One of the other reasons why we think about metallicity in general or just is because intuitively we know that to make a planet, you need enough stuff. And specifically, when we say stuff, we mean elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. And we noticed that from the first four planets that were ever discovered, and this paper was Gonzalez et al., 1997. So we had only discovered four planets, and we were already seeing this clear trend and this clear correlation between giant planets and metallicity. And so this motivated a whole subfield of exoplanet research, which I am now in as well, trying to to figure out what is this function and how do these planets correspond to metallicity. Can you explain why we would expect theoretically to have the relationship between the metallicity and the size of the planets? So these theories hypothesize if you have more iron in the disk, you tend to have more of everything else in the disk, other metals. Hmm. So Oh, I see. To make a giant planet, you have to have enough stuff. So you're able to accrete more if there's just more within the disk and it's easier for these dust particles to aggregate and actually form the planet. So we would expect this for every single type of planet and I guess that's, you know, many, many years past this paper, but they did find this for giant planets. So that's basically the idea. So just to clarify, by giant planets, do you mean like super Earths, gas giants, or is it just the core itself? Like I'm always confused. Yeah. Is it gaseous or rocky? It's definitely gaseous. So when we say gas giants here, 
Back in the day, they couldn't actually detect things much smaller than Jupiter-sized masses. And it's kind of also a wild field, too, because the field has completely changed because with the Kepler mission coming on board, we changed over from looking at radial velocities, which measure the mass of a planet, to looking at the transit methods. So with the transit method, we were able to discover much smaller planets. But up until this point, they had been using radial velocities as the primary method of planet detection, which is pretty cool. Radial velocities require a lot more measurements, and it's definitely more difficult to have large population studies. And to give you some context, one of the first papers that did an in-depth study of this planet metallicity trend looked at around 850 stars. Whereas now we're looking at 100,000 stars using the transit method. Wow. One more follow-up on that. You would say it's very hard to be able to identify radio velocities because you need spectroscopy and mm-hmm. Kepler and TESS can't do spectroscopy. Yes, exactly. So now typically we do try to follow up with radial velocities and the radial velocity precision is much better now. But since it is so time-consuming and requires mm-hmm. spectroscopy – we don't do blind searches for planets anymore using radial velocities. There might be a few here and there, but generally we use the transit method to discover and then radial velocities to selectively follow up on. So so yeah, 100%. Cool. Okay. One result that was found in Fisher and Valentini, 2005, and this was one of the first papers to look at like I said, this planet metallicity correlation. And what they found is that there was a strong trend over this range of metallicities that were greater than the metallicity of our sun, and it goes down to around negative 0.5, negative 0.6. Remind me, is that more or less iron? That is less iron. So negative one is basically the equivalent of an Earth mass of iron, whereas negative six is somewhere in between solar and, you know, this one Earth mass of iron. So it's pretty low and it's log scale. Mm. But yeah, so they looked at this and they found that the planets that they detected were predominantly around these more metal-rich stars. So there was this strong... Very, very strong trend. It almost looks like an exponential curve as you go from these low metallicities that are in the negative to these positive metallicities, and it exponentially goes up for these giant planets. And this was a huge result because, like I said, we had known that there was this trend, but this was the first time that a work was able to actually create a large enough sample to find a statistically significant correlation and actually quantify this trend. And they even come up with a function for it. And there's several several works that have come since then. Johnson 2010, just trying to constrain this function of giant planet occurrence rates versus metallicity. How do you disentangle these trends from observational biases? Couldn't you say that, oh, well, we're just more likely to discover gas giants in more metal-rich... Like, does that make any sense? Yeah, it 100% makes sense. And this is what... There have actually been several papers trying to look at this and say, 
is this an actual thing or is there some sort of bias that we're seeing? And long story short, it is an actual thing that we're seeing. These works take into account different uh, probabilities. So for example, these had radial velocities. They were limited by mass and not any sort of inclination that we see the planet in. So that's really awesome that we see it in radial velocities, but we also see it in the transit method as well. And you can correct for the transit method using the this thing called the geometric transit probability, which basically is just this probability that says, oh, will we be able to observe this planet transiting? Is it in a orientation where we can actually see it eclipsing mm -hmm. its host star? And then there are other things that people take into account as well and other things that people have done, like looking at how these correspond with how planet occurrence rates correspond with different orbital periods. And we find that, you know, we can adjust for those things. And then and then also looking at try and correcting for a false alarm probability, which is just basically, are we actually detecting planets? What's the likelihood that we end up getting a false positive? So this basically gets wrapped up into what we determine our detection efficiency is. So everything's weighted by all of these different parameters, like detection efficiency and, you know, various other other things there's like a laundry list of of things that people try to correct for but even with these corrections we still end up seeing this trend this very strong trend for gas giants and we still do this was you know one of the first papers where we actually see this trend but then ever since then it's just been paper after paper looking at this and they've looked at it for um, smaller planets as well now and looking at lower metallicities to try and see where does planet formation cut off? How much material do we need in the disk to actually form the planet? So that's why this is one of the landmark papers. And I feel like in my work, I've cited mm. it like a bazillion times because wow. it's just such a good paper, but also, you know, it seems like something that people are, there was like a lull but after probably like 2010 and Kepler came out because of all these cool discoveries and stuff that you could do with all the Kepler data and all the discoveries that we were making. And now it seems to have peaked again where people are like, okay, let's go back to this metallicity thing and we need to, we want to figure this out. Um, and uh, some people have even talked about tying planet formation to the evolution of our galaxy. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, so if you wanted to do that, this would be one of the first steps. You would need chemical evolution models. You know, that's something that we might end up seeing in the next, you know, 20, 30 years. We're not there at this point, but um, it's definitely something that's kind of interesting and, like, people are thinking about in the future. Well, sounds like an excellent landmark paper and both incredibly new and yet weirdly already out of date compared to the <laughs> studies that are done now, yeah. right? Yeah. All right. So thank you for bringing that. And that takes us to our one-sentence summaries. So, uh, Kirsten, why don't you go first? Oh, that is – I wasn't prepared to go first. Wow. <laughs> Metallicity is an important factor if we want to determine how much material is required for planet formation. Excellent. I like doing the person who presents second going first because then you get to hear the one-sentence summary immediately after, after hearing yeah. the paper and it gives you, oh yeah that was the main takeaway that's why this is important that's a good point that is a good point sabrina what do you have so as a theme 
we've seen in radio astronomy, the discovery of the first extraterrestrial radio waves was very unexpected. And Carl Jansky sets the stage for calibration and radio astronomy even today. Your boy, Carl. Man, I was I was like, if Sabrina does not say Carl in this sentence, I'm going to be sad. <laughs> Carl. I think in both of these papers, I, I wouldn't say maybe as much in Kirsten's. We could have put a little spin on it. Definitely in Sabrina's, Jansky did not have an expectation of what he would find and certainly didn't think there'd be some major radio source outside of the solar system. And Kirsten, I think the authors of the paper probably were somewhat surprised to find a strong correlation with metallicity because I, I don't know if there was a lot of theory before they went after it. And certainly no one had done it before, as you explained, to find the result to a level of statistical rigor. So mm -hmm. What do we say about the role of unexpected discoveries in creating landmark papers? Are the most famous results the least expected? Are the most famous results the least expected? I think it depends. Because I, I mean, if you think about LIGO mm -hmm. and gravitational wave detection, Rainier Weiss really had to stand by his belief that this was going to work for years and years and years until, I mean, it paid off. Right. But then there's also people like Jocelyn Bell who discovered the pulsar and that was unexpected. She wasn't looking for a pulsar. I think it can be both. It can be that it's expected and it'll still make a great impact. It's just maybe more exciting or maybe they're both just as exciting. Like when you've been working so hard for something your whole life and it gets discovered. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it definitely depends on the discovery because it seems like the really interesting things are things that end up changing science in some way. Or at least that's what I see as the consistent theme. Like, for example, the Fulton Gap was this gap in the radius that we see of many Neptune planets and, okay. and the radius that we see between super-Earths. And that was a pretty big deal, mostly because we didn't expect to see this giant gap in between these two populations of planets in terms of radius. And it was like, wait a second, what's happening here? Why, why would we end up seeing that? Whereas for maybe the planet metallicity trend, although we didn't 100% know that it was such a strong trend, we knew that we were like, oh, I, I think I'm seeing something here. Let's, let's go check this out. And it was also a pretty big deal. So I think that it definitely depends on, on the discovery and how much it changes what we think about our fundamental thoughts about what's happening. Yeah, I like that. So it's about the revision of what we currently think as opposed to the unexpected nature of the result. I think so. I don't know. Okay. I could be wrong. I buy that. <laughs> no, I think that's a reasonable explanation. And I think it, it makes sense why a lot of unexpected results also happen to be really important because... They drastically change what everyone thought. But even if it was somewhat expected, the conclusive proof is still necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because otherwise no one's going to change the way that they're thinking about or deriving different parameters or looking at certain things if there isn't any evidence to do so. Even if you're like, oh, you know, well, maybe it seems like that might be a thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah. All right. One more question for you. If it just so happened that your next paper was really landmark and ended up becoming super important for the field. But the downside is that is the most important paper you'll ever publish. 
is that a worthwhile trade-off? And would you be happy being known for the rest of your life for that one paper? It's interesting that you say this because I was thinking about, I know this is more physics-y, but Donna Strickland, one of the Nobel Prize winners, and I think it's the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Her paper on lasers was like one of her graduate school papers and no one really thought too much about it until later. Like she just kept kind of going on with her career and then they realized, oh, wow, this is really like a fundamental part of physics. And then it kind of became a big deal later. So I think you might not always know when something is going to be a landmark paper. Like there's high impact papers published all the time, like right. in these crazy, you know, journals like Nature and Science. But the ones that really stand out and hold up for years to come, because there's a lot of discoveries in there that are then retracted, right? Sometimes. Not maybe a lot, but there are retracted <laughs> studies. So No, it does happen. I think maybe it's a test of whether it holds up. I think that you can just build on that and that's mm-hmm. your career. I don't know. That's kind of exciting. Like you have this, la- you sort of discover your own niche and subfields through this landmark paper. So you would take the trade off? Yes. Okay. I've talked to other prominent people in the field in exoplanets and it's interesting. It seems to be like a common thing when you're talking about high impact papers and landmark papers. It seems to be like one of the things that people tend to say is that basically if you do it long enough and you stick out whatever you're doing long enough, the likelihood, and of course this is all people that do statistics, right? But the likelihood that you will have a landmark paper increases because Mm. you just keep doing the thing, right? And so I would say, honestly, I don't personally care whether or not I have a landmark paper. I just enjoy what I'm doing. Love that. And I think that, you know, a landmark paper would be pretty cool because I want a job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, there's such an element of luck that it's almost impossible to predict whether or not you can do it and structure a career around creating a famous paper. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, I I definitely think that there is a non-negligible luck factor when you're thinking Mm -hmm. about a landmark paper. So would you take the trade-off, Kirsten? The trade-off of having a landmark paper now versus... Well, you get a landmark paper now, but it becomes the thing you're most known for, the first line of your obituary. You can (laughs) still have whatever career you want, but is that trade-off worth it? Or do you want the mystery of never knowing what your career will be? Oh, I don't know. That's hard. Yeah, it is. Like, is it, is it a, are we talking about like, you're just a good scientist and people cite your papers like a normal amount? Or is it like, like on the other side, you have a landmark paper and then no one cites any of your other papers after that? Is that what we're talking about? Not necessarily. No, you're a good scientist. But at the end of the day, this is the thing you did. And you happen to be in grad school and you you could go on to have a nice 40-year, very prolific <laughs> published career. But this will be your most famous and cited paper for the rest of it. I think I would be okay with that. Yeah. Because then I get a job right. afterwards. I, I think it hinges on True. the fact that I can get a job. <laughs> it makes it easier to get a job at the beginning. So I think you want it earlier rather than later, right? Yeah. I agree with you, but I'll raise a counterpoint, which is that It matters for getting a job in academia, but it definitely doesn't matter for getting a job in any other field. And so Hmm. it might keep you in academia when you otherwise would leave and maybe have a more successful career elsewhere. 
Ooh, okay. I hadn't thought about that. Just a little counterpoint for you to ruminate on tonight while you're trying to fall asleep. Oh, okay. I don't know. I will be ruminating on that. <laughs> I will be 100%. Now I don't know. All right. And I think, I think that is where we're going to have to leave things today. And with that, we will conclude episode 64 of Astro Soundbites, our take on landmark papers, part two. You can find both of these papers and maybe some of the other papers that we were talking about linked in the show notes. I bet you know this, but you still want to hear me say it. We're on (laughs) Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and you guessed it, Amazon Music. And we have a Twitter account, at Astro Soundbites. So tweet at us and maybe say the favorite thing you learned from this episode. And of course... Thank you so much to everyone who submitted for our sonification competition. We just closed the submissions. We're going to be reviewing those in the next few weeks, and you'll hear from the winners before too long. As always, thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. 